So let's begin with a word of prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you very much for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the opportunity as your children to grow, to learn more about your word, to learn more about your law and its various applications. We do pray, Lord, that we would think rightly of your law and to see how you have applied your law in creation and redemption. That we might say with the psalmist, oh, I love your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to read Psalm 19 to get us started. There are two, there are several psalms that speak of the law of God. Two in particular, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, and I figured of those two I'd probably read Psalm 19 for the sake of time. Psalm 19 says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired of a than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and dripping to the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So a couple of review questions. Uh, I've listened to uh, the last two lessons. First lesson was on just summary of what the law is. Great lesson. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, wonderful lesson. And second lesson was the three kinds of law. Also a great lesson you should, have, you should listen to if you haven't. But just to summarize the first message, here's a question. What is the law? And if you weren't here for the first lesson, but you still have an idea as to what the law is, you are allowed to answer the question. It's a reflection of God's character. A reflection of God's character. Yes, that's a, that's a good summary. I'll accept it. I'll also take friendly amendments or other... <laughs> still have General Assembly on the mic. Um, the law is... Um, uh, I guess to say uh, it's how we should act. It's what God intended for us to live in accordance with Him. Good. To have a relationship with Him. We do those things we can have that relationship. Okay. Good, so a means by which we have proper communion with the Lord. He expresses his expectations for how we live, and we want to live rightly in communion with God, and we 
look to as law for that guidance. Um, can we say the law is the terms of a covenant? Could we say the law terms of the covenant? Sure. We could say that, and we would be in good company saying that. Do you want to explain a little more? Um, well, I don't know how much how much more I have to explain, but... Um, <laughs> Maybe a sentence or two more? Yeah, uh, so the, the, the terms of the covenant being that um, God, God, this is God's kingdom, and we're people in his kingdom, uh, and if we want to be on friendly terms with him, we have to live by his rules, just like, just like if you were a, uh, a small king or a chief, tribal chief or something, there might be a much more powerful tribe or mm -hmm. king above you that in order to have protection and, uh, you know, to, in order to limit your amount of conflict that you have, you would make an agreement or a covenant with that other, that higher power. Yes. Uh, for, you know, protection, safety, things like that. Yeah. So there's the scissor and vassal treaty, uh, it's a typical way of arranging agreements between a scissor and a vassal, and prefacing the law portion is the fact of the scissorans you know, rescuing, uh, providing for, um, you know, protecting, and on and on. But then there is a list of expectations, a list of law. So we even have, like, we have something like that in the Mosaic Covenant. In, in Exodus, God says that he has redeemed Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And then he gives them the law. So the law of God in the Mosaic Covenant is not for them to, to understand as a way by which they are justified because they've already been rescued. They've already been graced by the Redeemer. But it is a way by which to live in order, going back to um, Casey's comment, in order to live in communion with the Lord because, well, out of gratitude, really, because they, they love this Lord who has rescued them. Okay, so what are the three kinds of law that we considered last week? Moral. Moral law, okay. Civil. Civil. What? And judicial. Okay. Uh, moral, civil, and judicial. Uh, was, it, was there another category? Oh, ceremonial. Ceremonial, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, as our confession says. There's the ceremonial law, uh, the judicial law, right? And the judicial law, civil, okay, ceremonial, the Levitical system, think of that. And um, the civil, judicial kind of law has been uh, fulfilled. It, you could say, passes away by fulfillment in the new Israel, Jesus Christ. Remember, they had this law uh, given to them as a nation. And uh, so we see that especially in the Mosaic economy. And then our confession says that the principles of that law are, um, the general equity of that law is then to be continued in various nation, uh, nation states today. Uh, but it's not just a, this is exactly how it was with Israel, so this is exactly how it ought to be in, in every nation, down to all the details. Now that is, of course, a whole other subject um, we're not going to get into today. That's a whole 12-week course in itself. And the ceremonial 
that has to do with the Levitical system, the sacrifices, the cleanliness laws, and all that stuff, which Christ, as our sacrifice, fulfills and shows. Did you get an amen? Is that what I Okay, I, yeah, amen. <laughs> amen. Um, and we see through his miracles that he's reversing the, uh, the disruption that the fall had, had, uh, had wrought with cleansing lepers and um, raising people from the dead and on and on. And then the moral laws, as we just mentioned, summarized by the Ten Commandments. So those are three kinds of law. And just a reminder here from Paul in 1 Timothy 1.8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That's a, that's a very important verse. The law is good. Now, if you've... I don't want to put you all on the spot here, but I'm going to. If you feel comfortable, raise your hand if you have read all of the Westminster larger catechism. Not memorized it, okay, but you've read it all. It's, a lar- it's large, okay? Yeah. Do you know how many questions there are in the larger catechism? Close. 196. Okay. 196 questions. Questions 91 through 153, which is 62 questions of 196 questions, deal with the law. That's one-third. Almost one-third. That tells us that the Westminster Divines really love the law of the Lord. And also knew that there were many pitfalls in understanding the law of the Lord and wanted to make very clear what they were saying what they were not saying. In fact, if you get to the, be- the beginning of that section, which begins at 91, there are uh, answers, very lengthy answers, that you would take weeks to memorize, or maybe for some, a couple days, <laughs> to memorize on, lo- on rules on how to interpret the law. It's a very good instructed tool on how to view the law and apply the law. And then most of the questions deal with the Ten Commandments. What is, ten, what, what is this commandment? What does it mean? Uh, what does it forbid? Okay, so that's where most of the answers are, you know, are, are coming at. But they just, I, I was thinking about that, like how many questions are there on this particular subject? So it's a, it's a, it's a significant chunk. So, uh, just want to put that out there. And note here that in some traditions, when we come to the three uses of the law, in some traditions, the first use and second use are ordered differently. So usually when you say first use, you need to clarify what you mean. Second use, clarify what you mean. Typically the third use of the law in, in either arrangement is, uh, is still the same. But when we talk about uses of the law, we're talking about the applications of the law. How the law can be applied. This is just the typical Puritan sense when the Puritan preacher would get to the application point, he would mention different uses and quite uh, a lengthy list of uses. That's what, that's what we talk about here when we mean the three uses of the law. So the first use of the law is the civil use or the political use. And I'm going to be leaning heavily on a couple of our Dutch Reformed guys. Herman Boffing, surprise, surprise, uh, and then Gerhard is boss. These guys are uh, 
great theologians, and their resources are on the, on the second side of the handout. So Herman Bobbing says, in reference to this particular use, the law is a bridle that tames and restrains the raging animal within people. People can no longer fulfill the law in a spiritual sense. However, they can bring their actions into conformity with the law. Okay. So here, and I'm going to quote Voss in just a moment, Bobbing is saying, the law is used to restrain. To restrain the heart of the unbeliever, really. That's not to say there isn't a first use of law for, uh, for the regenerate. But uh, for the unregenerate, for, the, for that person who's not in Christ yet, uh, there's, there's a restraining element to it. But Bobbing says we cannot fulfill the law in a spiritual sense. Okay? That is to say, you, you cannot keep the law in thought, word, and deed if you are an unbeliever. Even if you are a believer, you can't keep the law perfectly at all. But that's not to say that there is, in, there is no sense in which an unbeliever conforms to the law. So he's talking about here that our actions, there can be an external compliance, a formal obedience. So if there's a, if there's a, a law, thou shalt not murder. Not every unbeliever physically murders someone, for which we're thankful. Right? Uh, but the heart of that law, the spiritual sense of preserving life and honoring God and having proper motive, is, is absent. Okay. So there's a civil righteousness, sometimes the reformers will say. When we talk about what makes an action good, it's not simply the external conformity to that law. You don't actually commit adultery. Don't sleep with that person who's not your wife. It, it, it means that, but it isn't just that. There's also the heart. And it's not just the heart, you know, the, the motive, but the, uh, there is the recognition of the one bef you know, before whose face we live, God. So this does not, the first use is not getting at the, the heart of the matter. But we can't say that everyone is as bad as he can be. Total depravity does not mean utter depravity. That all people are as awful as they can be. Again, thanks be to God. And the reason we can say this is because this is from this is a grace from God. We call this common grace. Gerhard Voss says, The law serves to prevent a profuse outbreak of sin. It is a restraint on sin in aid to promote civil righteousness. God wants to prevent an outbreak of sin on his creation. And so, by this, third, by this first use, by this application of law, he is restraining hearts of men. In fact, at Teen Group, we were uh, just considering this on Thursday, with, in Genesis 20, with uh, Abimelech, king of Gerar. You might remember that account. Hopefully the teens who are in this room who are out there on Thursday remember the account. But um, God said to Abimelech, you're a dead man because you have Abraham's wife. And he's like, well, I didn't know. And the Lord says, 
okay, you did this in the integrity of your heart, but you didn't do this. But he says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. In other words, if I didn't restrain you, you would have, you would have, you would have lain with her. Yeah. So that's God restraining this unbeliever. But this restraint is not always well received. Sometimes people resist the restraint. In fact, the unbeliever does not like to be restrained. Calvin says, this is in his Institutes, the more they restrain themselves, the more they are inflamed, the more they rage and boil, prepared for any act of outbreak, any act or outbreak whatsoever, were it not for the terror of the law. If they had opportunity, and if they could, uh, they could get out from under the thumb of the Lord, as they would view it, okay, then they would. But they're so terrified by certain negative consequences that they are restrained. But that doesn't mean their heart has changed. It's just that they don't have the opportunity. Now, I have not seen these movies, and I'm not recommending the movies. I've just seen trailers for these movies. I'm about to mention something about uh, Purge. Okay, there's a movie or a series of movies called The Purge. Scary movies, horror movies, not my cup of tea. Uh, I don't like to be scared. <laughs> but <laughs> the point in the, the, the movie is there is a period of time at which there are no consequences for the behavior. Breaking the law. So there's a purge. You, know, you can end the lives of any that you want if you can get to them. So everyone's like sheltering, holding shelter, and preventing it. And others are trying to find others and destroy them. Because they know that they won't be restrained for that 24-hour period, or however long it is. That's the heart of the unbeliever if, he is, if his heart is not checked by this use of the law. Again, we can thank God for his restraint on unbelievers. And again, this was us. You have to remember, this is not just, not just them over there. This was us before Christ changed our hearts. And of course, that manifestation looked different from person to person. And if you were saved at a very young age, praise be to God that he spared you the um, outflow of a wicked heart. And others have different testimonies. And say, yeah, this is exactly what I was doing. I was living as if I wasn't restrained because I didn't want to be restrained. So I was doing my will. And God saved me. So what texts come to mind when you think of this first use? Well, I think of the whole book of Judges, particularly Judges 21, as a, what happens when there is no restraint. Mm -hmm. Because Judges ends saying, in that those days there is no king in Israel, so everyone can go and fight in his own land. There's no restraint on people, that's how it would be. Yes. And that's not a good statement. As some have said, well, this is exactly how a perfect society ought to be. There's no king in the land. Everyone does with the right of their own eyes. That's, that's, a, that's a negative assessment. Yeah. They needed a king who would help check them. Very appropriate answer given the current series. In the New Testament, Romans 13, 
Romans 13. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Say more. Because um, purpose of civil authority. Purpose of civil authority, yep. The government is a deacon, a servant of the Lord to check our sin. First text I, my mind went to was Romans 1. The unbeliever suppresses, uh, but they're not as bad as could be. God is, is keeping them in check. Also Romans 2, mm-hmm. 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law of nature do what the law requires, they are law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, and show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Yes. So, because God wrote the moral law on our consciences, even unbelievers are restrained by that piece of the moral Yes. So Romans 1 and Romans 2 help us to see that every single person, by virtue of being made in the image of God, has a knowledge of God, and that's Romans 1, and then the implanted moral law of God written on his heart. So those render the unbeliever without excuse when he suppresses or when he goes away from the moral law. But God has given man that knowledge and that ethical code of the heart. And so, as, Rome, as Paul says in Romans 2, 14, 15, that, yeah, even Gentiles are, are conforming to the law in some sense. Exodus 20. Exodus 20? The giving of the commandments, because that's the first, you know, of what we see of these particular specific laws given to restrain restrain evil. And then all of the 613 laws in the Old Testament are actually expressions of those Ten Commandments. Teasing those Ten Commandments out. 613. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, that's what I've been told, anyways. That's the uh, the latest rabbinic scholarship. Actually, it's pretty ancient. I just haven't counted them all myself. So Bob Inc. warns us: external conformity of one's actions with the law can be present. It is precisely because of this that we are able to deceive ourselves so terribly, thinking that we can fulfill the law and go in search of eternal salvation in our own righteousness. So because people do externally comply to a standard, we then deceive ourselves thinking, oh, this must be all that God requires of me. I can keep this law, I can keep that law. Now I can merit justification. I can merit salvation. I can merit eternal life. And that, Bobbing says, is a terrible deception. Because we can never merit salvation. There's only one who has merited that for us. There's only one whose works were perfect. And I think we know who that person is. Jesus Christ. Okay. There's not, it's not, um, it might be initially provocative to say that you are saved by works. And you are saved by works. Just not your own saved by the works of Christ. 
John Calvin says, unbelievers thoroughly detest the law itself and execrate the lawgiver, so that if they could, they would most willingly annihilate them. Again, this is, this, this will be the state of all those who end up justly in hell. They will continue to know the law of God and continue to hate the God of the law. And if they could, they would dethrone, they would commit deicide, they would, they would kill God. And they hate that they can't do that. And when unbelievers will be in hell, there will no longer be a restraint. There will no longer be that common grace that envelops creation right now. And so they will be um, without any bit of grace. And that's difficult to imagine, kind of wickedness. And then also, unchecked, like, you can't do anything about it. You are so frustrated with God who made you. You can't do anything about it. Again, this is just a reminder of, of what God has saved us from. He has saved us from the wrath to come. So that's the first use. The second use is the pedagogical or convicting use. In education, we talk about pedagogy, proper pedagogy. This is teaching, uh, leading the children, the youth, rightly. Okay. Galatians 3.24 is often used to speak to this second use of the law. So that the law was our guardian. Or it could be translated our schoolmaster or our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the second use of the law has two functions that Gerhardus Voss and Herman Bobby point to. Again, these are not the only ones, but I wasn't going to cite from everyone. Voss says, this use serves as a disciplinarian, convicts man of his sin and inability so that he might go to Christ, who has fulfilled the law. Convicts man of his sin, but not just of his sin, but of his inability. You're a sinner, and you are unable to save yourself. The law of God is used to point out the fact that you are a sinner. The terrible reality that without the salvation of the Holy God, you will find yourself suffering for all eternity under the wrath of that Holy God. So you are convicted and you are unable to go to Christ, who has fulfilled the law. Bobbing notes two functions. The first uh, is to convict us of our sin. And the second is to convict us of our judgment. So, that's, if you're filling out the outline there, that's why the two uh, blanks are there. Conviction of sin. Conviction of judgment. The second use of the law has this function to convict us of our sin and to convict us of the judgment that comes. <coughs> Romans 3, 19 and 20 would be one text to go to. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable 
God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law, you know that you are a sinner. Through the law, you know that you will be judged. The hidden premise is God actually cares about sin. That he is holy and it will do something about sin. Because you could be a sinner and be for a God who has no inkling of holiness. And he'd be like, yeah, sure, whatever you want to do. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that exists. So, the second use, this convicting use, is that we're sinners, that we deserve judgment. And Bobbing says that in this use, the law gives nothing, it only demands. It gives nothing, it only demands. The law, then, in this use, does not, um, does not save you. Right? For by works of law, no human being will be justified. You cannot think that you will be justified, that you will be declared righteous in the sight of God by doing any work of the law. It's so crystal clear in Scripture. But the law does serve that purpose of saying, here is, here are what God, here's what God demands of his people, of his creation, of his image bearers. God demands holiness. How could a holy God demand anything less than holiness? Can you imagine a holy God just being careless about how we live our lives? Could we really call him holy, holy, holy? And Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 48, You therefore are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard is perfection. The standard is utter holiness. And we wake up every single morning knowing that we do not measure up to that standard. And so we even see this second use applied in our own lives. That's why we go to our God not as our judge, but as our Father. Say, Father, I've sinned. Forgive me. Lord's Prayer is very important. So it's a reminder daily to come to the throne of grace because you will not find judgment. You will find grace because the judgment has already been paid. Again, by Christ. How have you seen this use of the law applied? Do you use it on yourself? Not that you would consciously say, now I'm going to apply the second use of the law. <laughs> but it's just part of the, the warp and woof of your Christian life. Last part of Romans 2? Yeah, he's saying, you know, you're, you call yourself a Jew, you both, you rely on the law, you boast in, in your keeping of the law. Mm -hmm. He says, you're sure that you're a guide to the blind, the light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Um, 
you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Residents are in the name of God and blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. So I think Paul is getting at that um, that question. We we should uh, we should use the law to convict others, but in even greater proportion we should see the, the second use of the law and apply it to ourselves. Um, it's not, like you said, it's not just then. The law is not just for unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Now, what is your motive for for that course of action? Well, Why are you doing that? Well, I want to grow my walk with God, and if I'm struggling with a certain sin, I want to remind myself of God's word that teaches how one evil it is and how I should flee from it. And why do you want that? I want to be more like Jesus. And why do you want to be more like Jesus? <laughs> well, I want to dwell with God in His house forever, and I know I can't because of my sin. But I know that because of Jesus I can, because Jesus calls me to be holy like you. Alright, I'll accept it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We talked earlier about terms of the covenant and how the law can be seen as terms of the covenant. They don't necessarily go away uh, with the, the new, better covenant that Christ fulfilled. He still says to us, if you love me, keep my commandments. But I think what I hear Joseph say is um, when, when we love someone, we want to please them. Uh, and I don't, when Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments, I don't think he was saying, if you don't keep my commandments, I then do not love you. Right. Um, but uh, the terms of the covenant are still in place. They're just fulfilled in a different measure like you described earlier. Uh, and now we can obey out of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, love is the new law. Yes. Karen. Going along with what Joseph said, um, and I understand and agree with what you said, another part of that is the help that the truth of God's word gives us. We actually, God's word is truth. Um, we take it to the bank. Amen. It gives us the help we need, something to Yes. What you say reminds me of Jesus' uh, high priestly prayer in John 17. Your word is truth. Not just true, though it is. Not just one true thing among other other true things. It's, it is truth. It is a standard. You take it to the bank. And Peter tells us that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through a, a knowledge of him, Christ. So if we want to know all things that pertain to life and godliness, we want to, then we seek to know Christ. And Christ has revealed 
a rule of life, a way of living with Christ. And the, the rule of love, as Johnny was saying. And I was pressing Joseph to transition us into this third use of the law. The normative use, or the rule of life. And I would submit to you that this is actually the original use of the law. In fact, you don't get the first two uses if there's no sin. You don't have a restraint on sin. You don't have a conviction of sin if there's no sin. What you have is God's self-disclosure, his revelation of his character. This is who I am, and this is who you are, and here's how we have a communing relationship. Third use of the law. The original use of the law. And let's, re- let's be reminded of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus loves the law. He is the Word of God. So now I'm, I'm, he- I'm leaning on uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19. There's a whole chapter on the law of God. And as I mentioned earlier, for those who came in a little bit later, uh, the larger catechism has 62 questions and answers of the 196 questions. 62 of them are on the law of God. So it's not a surprise then that you'd have a whole chapter in the Confession of Faith on the law of God. And chapter 19, section 2, I'm summarizing it here, it says, The moral law of God remains a perfect rule of righteousness before or after the fall of man. God does not change the moral law of God once sin enters the world. And then we realize we can't keep his law. Gerhardus Voss says, For the believer... The law becomes a rule of life, according to which he orders his life out of true thankfulness. Out of true thankfulness, the Christian orders his life. Now, by the way, this third use of law can only be applied in the life of the believer. All right? Because in order to have true thankfulness to God, you must have a heart that's been truly changed by God. There must be a reason for which you give God thanks. Namely, your justification, your salvation, eternal life. So why would true thankfulness... I think I kind of gave some of it away. Why would true thankfulness be a motive for this third use of the law? Psalm 119. 
the book of Proverbs. Matthew 5, and many other texts. Any other answer to why would true thankfulness be a motive? Well, once we are, you know, saved by grace, we know that it is not our own righteousness that saves us. It is not our own works. So our obedience to the law is not for the sake of trying to seek salvation, but is purely out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. I mean, for all that he has saved us from, the least, the very least we can do is strive to be like him. Well, you're also supposed to have, you're supposed to have the regenerative spirit, right? Once you are saved. Yep. And uh, as a guy, God has put laws in our, in our, his written word and in our, on our hearts through our, in which our regenerative spirit should make us long to follow. Mm-hmm. Yep. And our sin is our inability to follow those laws mm-hmm. consistently yep. throughout our life. And for that, we need the sacrifice of Christ and the forgiveness of our sins through his sacrifice. Because that's the only complete forgiveness that you're ever going to get for sin. If you do not follow no law, you cannot follow God's law. Right. So you have your knowledge of that has to uh, precede your actions in life. Sure. And we have that knowledge and that motive and that power because of the Spirit. Because of the Spirit of Christ, who now indwells us. Without the Spirit, you don't bear any fruit. But thanks be to Christ that it is the Spirit of Christ. And Christ is the vine, we are the branches. And if we are going to bear any good fruit, it is going to be because of the Spirit sealing these branches to the vine. And not just sealing, but continuing to give life to the branches. And that life is coming from the vine, Christ. Believers are not under the moral law of God as a covenant of works. Now, the covenant of works, if you know some of your covenant theology, was a good covenant. It had to be a good covenant because it was a covenant that God made. And you, you recall the covenant of works is that covenant by which God... Um, works with Adam and in Adam all his posterity and he in Genesis 2.17 says you shall eat you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for on the day that you eat of it you shall surely die so he's promising life upon the condition of perfect perpetual obedience but he's also promising threatening death if there is disobedience if there's breaking away from that covenant. And we know Adam and Eve broke that covenant. So then Genesis 3.15 comes in and God promises to provide the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And that's where you have the, the beginning of that saving grace. And you can see at the end of Genesis 3 that God 
overwhelms Adam and Eve with grace, with the atonement garments. Okay? God did not say, okay, well, they really messed up. I'll just go to plan B. Forget the covenant of works altogether. No. The hardest boss in his Reformed Dogmatics says something like, the covenant of grace is Christ's fulfillment of the covenant of works for us. You have, you have fulfilled the covenant of works because you are in the new Adam, Jesus Christ. But how that fulfillment is, is carried out is not from your own obedience. It's from grace. That Christ has fulfilled all of the law. And then he actually gives you the tree of life. By grace. Years ago, we did a, a series on covenant, the, the chapter of the covenant, and you can find that on Sermon Audio if you want to get more details. I'm sure you do. Okay, so Confession of Faith, chapter 19, paragraph 6, says that this law is of, quote, great use for the regenerate. Okay, for the regenerate, for the, for the one who, whose heart has been changed, for the one who is in Christ, for the believer, for the elect, the law of God is of great use. And then the confession goes on to list six, at least I've itemized them as six, manifestations or reasons for this great use. And the first one is to inform us of God's will and our duty. God has given us his law that we might know his will and our duty. second one is, is similar to it, and then I'll comment on both of them. So the first is to inform us of God's will and our duty. The second is to direct and to bind us to walk accordingly. To direct and to bind us to walk accordingly. <coughs> By the way, if you miss any of these, just chapter 19, paragraph 6, and you're going to get them. To direct and to bind us to walk accordingly. So, just taking these two subpoints. We are not flying blind. We don't make up what we ought to do. We have been, again, graciously told by our Father who is in heaven, who loves us, here is what I'm like, and here is what I expect of you. I'm not giving you the, the, um, the secret things that belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29, but the revealed things that belong to you and your children. So, we love the law of God, it is of great use to us because God, by the law, informs us of what God's will is, what our duty is, to direct us, to bind us to walk accordingly. Three, to, and you're going to have to summarize this because it's pretty lengthy, just to help us to discover the sinful pollutions of our nature, hearts, and lives, in order to convict us, humble us, and stir up a spiritual hatred against sin. In other words, to remind us that we're still sinners. Do believers need to be reminded that they're still sinners? Yes. We should never be, be cocky and arrogant and think, well, I have no sin. I'm a believer, so I'm perfect in Christ, and so there's no manifestation of corruption at all. Ever, you know. No, that's, that's, you're bringing in the eternal state you know, into the present. One day that will be. It is just not yet. 
One day you will be without corruption. And so we thank God that through his law we are reminded that we are still sinners. We are humbled by this. And this humility then brings us to the throne of grace for that daily forgiveness of sins, for that daily um, divine assistance, that we might live rightly before him. The fourth thing is to help us to see more clearly our need of Christ and his perfect law-keeping. In other words, the law of God is of great use to the regenerate to help the regenerate to help us to see Jesus more clearly. Do you need help to see Jesus more clearly? Yes. Amen. And the law of God is, is used as one way that God helps us to see Jesus, the perfect law keeper. Five, there is a use of the law's threatenings. That's how the confession puts it, threatenings. Though your word document is going to say it's wrong. We might just say threats. But the use of the law's threatenings to restrain our corruptions, again, this is for the, the regenerate. This isn't the first use of the law. This is the third use. To restrain our corruptions by showing what the law forbids, showing what our sins deserve, and showing what afflictions we may expect for our sins. So there is, again, this, this use of the law God has here. There's a reason for these threats. And read the book of Hebrews. He's writing, Paul will say, he's writing, <laughs> I was bold enough to say it. He's writing to believers who are, uh, who are playing around with Judaism, who are messing around with the old system thinking that that was what they need to return to. And he cautions them over and over again. Very hard words to the church. So they might wake up. They might be reminded of the corruptions that lie within still. And then the sixth point of the great use of the regenerate is the use of law's promises. We sometimes think the law doesn't have promises. It's just threats. It's just bad stuff. It's just no's. No. In fact, if you look up uh, Deuteronomy, it's 27 and 28, there's a list of curses for disobedience and a list of rewards for obedience. So the use of the law's promises to show God's approval of obedience, to show what blessings come to the obedient. But, we, but these, are, these are gifts from God. These are, well, look at what I earned. Look how mighty my obedience was. Look how robust it was. I obeyed every aspect of the law. No. Even our own confession says that our works, our good works, they are good works. But they're only good works because they are attached to Christ. We do bear fruit if we're in Christ. But we only do that because of grace. So we can't then say, well, now I'm boasting. Can't then boast in what we've done. No, it, it's all of Christ. It's all of grace. We believe that. God rewards us not because of what we've done, though He uses our obedience. He rewards us because of what He's done. This just shows the overwhelmingly gracious character of our God, who 
rewards such weak sinners and saints. He just gives freely to his people. Irrespective of, their, of the fact that they are just not fully obedient at any point. Calvin says uh, in his Institutes, Because we need not doctrine merely, but exhortation also, the servant of God will derive this further advantage from the law. And he's going to explain what that further advantage is. By frequently meditating upon it, he will be excited to obedience and confirmed in it, and so drawn away from the slippery paths of sin. So he's saying, we don't need simply to be taught. We do need to be taught. But we also need exhortation. We need a word of exhortation. We need that encouragement. We need that, uh, that pep talk. We need that great speech and to excite to obedience. We need to be aroused to obedience. And Calvin says, the law helps us to do that. Moves us. Because we also don't want to go back into those slippery paths of sin. We want to follow the path of righteousness that our Good Shepherd leads us on. And remember, we get off the path and who brings us back? We're sheep. We're sheep. We're not that smart. Who brings us back to the path of righteousness? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit? Oh, except that. Yeah. Christ. Christ, good shepherd. Our knowledge of the law, our knowledge of the word, of how we are supposed to do those things, but inspired by God yes. through His Holy Spirit. So it is our God, the good shepherd of the sheep, who brings us back on the path of righteousness. So at the end of the journey, the sheep don't say, they don't look back and say, I really kept myself on that path. <laughs> Good job, me. No, it's looking back up to the Savior, the Shepherd. Thank you for continually speaking to me and opening my ears that I might continually hear your voice. Again, all glory to God. You want to preach in an ABF lesson? <laughs> so, uh, Confession of Faith 197, uh, just because of time here. It says, The uses of the law do not contradict the gospel, but instead, quote, sweetly comply with it. The uses of the law sweetly comply with the gospel. Why? Because the Spirit of the Christ lives and works in us to follow the Christ. And we don't have time to get into all this, but it but sometimes we say it's, it's law versus gospel. And there can be, when we talk about the, the, the second use of the law, we're not going to be justified by works of law. So law versus grace. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But remember, the law is from God. This isn't man-made law that we're talking about here. And everything that comes from above is a gift from God. And it is a good thing. So the law is good. That's why I read Psalm 19. The gospel is good. These are both goods from God. So I would say law and gospel. But remember, we are never justified by works of law. So if we're only thinking second use of the law, yes, it is, we need to make that distinction of law versus gospel. 
But when we are just when we are saved by the grace of God, then that third use kicks in, that original use. It's now I love Jesus, now I'm thankful for Jesus. How can I follow my Lord and my Savior? Listen to his law. And that's why this whole series, uh, after the, this preparatory work, is then about the Ten Commandments. Because this is not, a, this is not a, a, going to be a class on how you ought to obey the ceremonial law. We're not in the Old Testament economy anymore. We're not Levites. Okay, we're not doing that. This isn't a class on how to uh, be a, a good Israelite in the nation of Israel. So we don't need that judicial. Though, again, there is uh, usefulness to seeing the general equity of the law of God in the Mosaic time for present-day uh, relations. That would be a whole other uh, topic, as I said. But the focus is on the moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments. Why do we um, not want to covet? Because we have everything in Christ. Why do we not want to steal? Why do we not want to lie? We don't want to lie because God is truth. And we want to be more like God. Because Jesus is the way the truth, and the life. Why do we want to keep the fourth commandment and remember the Sabbath day? Because Jesus has given us rest. It's not because by doing any of these things we are now meriting justification. It's because by doing these things we're being more like Jesus. And we're communing more with Jesus. Because we love Jesus. He saved us. There's no better reason had other things to say, but I've run out of time to say them. And I was really going to end on O. Palmer Robertson's uh, message to the General Assembly in an assembly-wide seminar, but I'll have to hold off on that. You can ask me after class, class, after this, maybe after worship would be better, uh, if you want to hear what O. Palmer Robertson had to say. But... Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you for your law that psalmist says revives the soul, enlightens the eyes. Your Lord is clean, pure. We thank you, Lord, for this, your revelation of yourself. We desire to be more like Christ. It is Christ who saved us. He leads the way. And we don't want continue in our sin. We want to continue in the life of the Savior. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would continually work in us to see our sin, to see our Savior, that we might follow him by the power of the Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.